Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the Irish Times Business Podcast. Brought to you by Ryanair Business Plus. Business made simple. It's October the 8th. I'm Tom Lyons and you're very welcome to this week's edition of the Irish Times Business and Technology Podcast. Uh, the Central Bank has announced new measures to limit how much banks can lend to home buyers. To discuss what this means for house hunters, the property market and the banks themselves, I'm joined by the Irish Times Managing Editor, Cliff Taylor, Chief Reporter Carl O'Brien and Consumer Affairs Correspondent Connor Pope. Cliff, I'll start with you. Can you tell me what are these new guidelines or proposals that are being put forward by the Central Bank? Well, the key proposals uh, which it plans to come into effect from next January are to limit the amount that the banks can lend to uh, mortgage borrowers. Uh, first of all, most borrowers are going to have to have a, uh, a deposit of around 20% of the purchase price uh, before they buy a, buy a house, uh, which would be a, a rule which some of the banks would implement anyway, or so they would say. But I think putting it in writing is, is, is going to lead to some difficulties for first-time borrowers. There are also new limits in relation to uh, the loans, the amount of loans that have been given out relevant to the, relative to the income of the borrowers, uh, which are also going to, be, going to be significant. And part of the rules also is to limit the amount of higher-risk, so-called higher-risk loans that the banks can give out. So really what the central bank is trying to do, it's trying to avoid the kind of problems we ran into uh, from 2000 or the early 2000s on, where people borrowed, uh, you know, vast amounts compared to their levels of income uh, and were given very large mortgages by the bank. And, you know, people were borrowing not only on the basis of this year's income, but next year's income and next year's bonus and, uh, you know, the amount they might get the year after. The central bank wants to clamp down on that and decrease the risk of us running into the same kind of difficulties again. And what's your sense, Connor? Do you think that this is a sensible proposal or is it just going to make it tougher for first-time buyers to, to get on the property ladder? Well, I think it has to be looked at in two different ways. There's the macro impact of it and the micro impact. On a macro level, it probably does make sense because one of the one of the huge problems that caused the cataclysmic a crash was the reckless lending of all of the borrowers who were giving 100 and sometimes 105% of the mortgage and they were giving people just staggering amounts of money, seven, ten times salary. And that's what got us into the problems. But on a micro level, I really struggle to see how a first-time buyer is going to be able to buy a property, particularly in Dublin. It's not so bad when you go into, into rural areas or places like Galway, Waterford, Cork or Limerick. But 
If you think that the average price of a three-bedroom semi-detached house in on the north side of Dublin is around 260, rising to in excess of 400,000 euro on the south side of the city, if you're on the average industrial wage or if you're a dual-income household and you're earning a combined salary of 70,000 euro, which isn't excessive, to be able to buy a 300,000 euro house, you're going to need to save 60 grand and then the maximum you'll be able to borrow according to the new loan to income rates will be about 245,000 euro. So even if you're on a combined income of 70 grand, you're going to need 60,000 euros worth of savings. And I, for one, can't see how it could be remotely possible for any household, any couple on 70,000 euros a year to put aside 60 grand. So it has made, it has raised the bar for first time buyers. But I think there's another po- point that probably has been overlooked in the, in the first 24 hours uh, after the story broke. And that's what impact is it going to have on the rental sector? Because the key thing here is first time buyers and people who want to, first time buyers in particular, although the focus shouldn't be on them exclusively, first time buyers will have to rent for longer. That means there's going to be more pressure put in, put on the rental market, which is already coming under pressure. You've seen rents going up by 20% over the last 12 months. If that puts more pressure on the rental market, rental prices are going to, or rents are going to increase. That's going to make rental properties more attractive for cash buyers because the yields will be greater. And that's going to have a spiral effect. So on the macro level, yes, it's very prudent by uh, Patrick Honan and the central bank. And this might be a way to temper the property market and to stop the bubble inflating like it did last time. But on the micro level, it is incredibly bad news for a whole swathe of people. Do you agree with that, Carl? Do you think that this people are being, you know, pushed out and will, will never be able to afford their own homes? Yeah, I, I don't think anyone can argue with the macroeconomic policy. No one wants to see a repeat of what happened in the Tiger years. But I don't think there's been sufficient examination of people who are going to get caught up in the fallout. And I don't. And it's not even just first-time buyers. I'm thinking of the negative equity generation, people who bought apartments or starter homes and have outgrown them. And they got screwed by the crash And now when they're just maybe beginning to emerge from negative equity and hoping to move out of these situations, suddenly they found that they have three months to get a mortgage or else, you know, uh, that's it for maybe several more years of saving. So, of course, I get the macroeconomic policy, but I don't think there's been sufficient due regard to people who are being caught up in the fallout and in the meantime. And what do you think, Cliff, you know, in terms of the next three three months uh, or two, it's, it's even less than three months now. Do you think that we're going to see this mad scramble of, of people trying to trying to get in under, get in, get in before the January deadline or is that an exaggeration? It's possibly a bit of an exaggeration, but you're going to see some for sure. Uh, I think the central bank will be watching really carefully to try and put pressure on the banks not to allow that to happen. I think what we're definitely going to see is we're definitely going to see the banks uh, engaging in a very, uh, you know, very serious PR offensive to try and get these rules tempered back a little bit, to try and get a bit more leeway in terms of what they can lend to people and to try and ensure that, you know, these rules aren't, aren't implemented in such a strict way that the amount of money they can lend out next year is going to be really seriously constrained. You know, you're in a situation where the banks are just coming out of a really, you know, traumatic period and starting to get back, I suppose, to some kind of normal business again or hoping to get back to some kind of normal business again. You know, so so they won't welcome this uh, for, for, for sure. And I think they're going to lobby pretty hard over the next few months. But it does appear... Uh, that the central bank is, is 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 pretty resolute in wanting to implement these new rules, although it remains to be seen whether some of the details can be changed. And I, I think particularly the detail in terms of the amount of deposit that a first-time buyer has to have. Uh, you know, it, it strikes me that the key rule really is 
how much you can borrow compared to your level of income. That's the measure of whether you can repay or not. And, and I think that's the really key thing in terms of stopping problems emerging again. You know, perhaps there might be room for a bit more leeway in terms of, you know, the amount of deposit that first-time buyers will need because, need, because as Connor was saying, this is going to cause a lot of problems, particularly at a time when people on relatively low incomes are paying a relatively high amount of tax, have very little disposable income. It's very hard to save that kind of money. And do you agree, Connor? Do you think that there could, that this could be something that could be changed or that there could be, if, you know, we're all against a, another property bubble, but is there things that could be changed within the detail uh, yeah. which would make it more palatable? Well, I mean, I think for, for generations, the rule was that uh, house buyers needed to have 10%, a 10% deposit. And I can't for the life of me see why that rule needs to be changed. I think 10% is, is a realistic amount for a young couple to put aside. And I think if you have a 10% deposit and you do buy a, do buy a property... You know, the bank is protected to a degree, but I don't think that raising the bar to make to moving it from ten percent to twenty percent is going to protect a bank from another cataclysmic crash. Say, for instance, because let's face it, property prices fell in some areas by over sixty percent. So even if you had your twenty percent deposit back in the, at the and you bought a house at the, at the height of the boom, and property fi- prices fell by. 60%, you'd still have been mired in negative equity. But the, the other key thing here is like, we, we know that there's a problem because according to, one, according to one report, now admittedly it was a report from the state agents and they do have a self-interest at heart, but it, it reported that between March and June of this year, house prices in some areas of Dublin were increasing by €220 Euro a day. Now that's too much. That is a desperately overheated market. And because there was an absence of credit, we couldn't call it a bubble because it wasn't a credit bubble, because there wasn't an ac- a- a- access to easy credit. But it was still hugely problematic. But I'm just wondering if, if it's a good idea for the central bank to act in isolation. Because what clearly needs to happen is the supply issue needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed in a really profound way at the highest level of government. There needs to be more houses built in areas that people want want to live. Um, and until that supply issue is addressed, there's always going to be a squeeze on property. And if you if you price younger couples out of the market for the for the bottom level properties, you know, you know that's going to have a very serious impact on, on, on the whole sector. And I'm just wondering if maybe the central bank is being a little bit too preemptive. Now, he- heaven knows if the central bank in 2001 or 2002 had done this, we would be in a very different place. But, you know, they didn't. And I think one of the things that's guiding the central bank's hand today is that fear that come 2020, that they will be accused of making exactly the same mistakes that previous central bank administrations did and di- despite the fact that we had all the knowledge at our, at our, at our hands and we had, we, we had the knowledge of hindsight. And Carl, do you, do you think that, would you agree with some of the things that Connor's saying there about, you know, like, is there a joined up thinking uh, between, say, what the central bank is doing and what other arms of the state is doing? Uh, well, I guess we'll find out in the budget, you know, where we're being told there will be uh, plans to incentivise uh, construction and the provision of social housing and all of this. Uh, who knows, it'd be doubtful as to what meaningful measures there will actually be in the budget uh, next week. But um, but I think, you know, that I think there's really panic coursing through a, a lot of people at the moment because of the really short time frame around this. And, and maybe, you know... Um, a better idea is looking at um, stricter rules around income and loans relating to people's income rather than necessarily just deposits, you know. And I think that, as I said, deposits being asked of people, 20% is just out of reach for so many uh, low and even middle income 
income earners out there. Yeah. I just also think, I think Cliff mentioned it, I think this notion that there'll be a rush to approve mortgages between now and Christmas is rather fanciful. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think banks are going to loosen the purse, purse strings to such an extent that they will be literally throwing mortgages at people over the next eight or ten weeks. They're not going to do it because fiscally it would be very imprudent of them to do it. It would be very bad policy and it would be very bad practice with, uh, and the central bank would frown, frown on it. So there was reports in some, news, in some media organisations today that there would be a mad rush towards whole, huge numbers of new mortgages being issued. That simply isn't going to happen and I would stake Cliff's reputation on it. <laughs> From just 69.99 one way, new Ryanair Business Plus gives you premium seating, a flexible ticket, security fast track, a checked bag, but no business class curtain. Ryanair. Business made simple. Subject to availability. See Ryanair.com for more details. And Cliff, given it's your reputation on the line, <laughs> what do you think of what Connor was saying there? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd agree. I mean, I think what we have to realise is that we're in a very peculiar housing market at the moment. We're not in a kind of a normal, as Connor was saying, we're not in a normal housing boom driven by a credit bubble. The prices in Dublin have been driven up by a couple of factors. The main one is the lack of housing supply. Uh, the lack of new homes on the market in particular uh, and the lack of uh, of larger second-hand properties and also demand which has been fed in large part by investors coming back into the market and by people, emigrants returning fr- fr- from overseas, people who'd been sitting on the sidelines and had some cash for a few years, I suppose. So, so we're in a very kind of dysfunctional market. So it's very hard to predict how the market's going to move over the next year and how these new rules might actually might actually affect it. You know, it, it's far from taken for granted, I think, that the current level of price increases, for example, is, is, is going to continue. But I, but I think, as, as the guys have been saying, the key thing here is, uh, you know, is a, is a joined-up policy approach, something that we haven't been, you, you might say, very good at in this country before in terms of different departments and different agencies and different parts of government working together. We have a chronic lack of housing supply. There are four or five areas that need to be addressed to kind of start looking at that. Uh, the whole area of planning, the whole area of, you know, where houses can be built, what kind of houses we, we, we can build, how finance is going to be provided, uh, you know, what incentives are going to be put in place, you know, how the state is going to contribute via social housing. So we need all those bits to, to start to come together. And as Connor said, you know, if, if they don't, these rules on their own are going to create, you know, a particular problem for, for first-time buyers. I, I guess the hope would be that more houses coming on the market over the next year, 18 months, would actually lead, lead, lead to prices topping out or maybe even starting to ease back a bit. And there certainly hasn't been much sign of urgency from the government. If you recall, a week before the local elections, they published this construction 2020 document, which uh, was a very glossy and attractive looking brochure with lots of nice ideas of how to um, deliver housing, speed up the delivery of housing. But there's been very little um, activity on the ground actually since then. And um, I think, you know, even though this is allegedly a priority at government level, we're not seeing a lot of concrete measures being taken, actually, to speed things up. And would you, it's so disappointing, do you think, Connor, that, you know, here we are, we had this incredible bubble, this incredible crash, and now we're back into this volatility again. I mean, do you, what, what do you think the central bank has been doing over the last couple of years? It's like, you know, here we are again, and they're coming out with uh, quite dramatic uh, things. Well, I think one of the things that preoccupied the minds of the great and good in the central bank over the last three or four years has been the arrears problem, because that has been one of the 
biggest issues which has confronted the, our society um, as a whole over the last uh, four or five years. You're looking at in excess of 100,000 people in long-term arrears. And just trying to get a handle on that and trying to deal with it uh, has proved to be extraordinarily difficult for them. Now, I'm not sure if the central bank has exactly covered itself in glory in how it has dealt with that issue. Um, but I think what, you know, as Carl says, I think one of the things that it has been striking over the last two or three or four years is how little influence the government has, ha- has had on the recovery in the property sector. It has done virtually nothing, to, as far as I can see, to to uh, help people who are in great uh, mortgage distress. It has done very little to try and get a, get a handle on how to ensure that we don't see the cyclical thing happening again, bubble, bust, bubble, bust. It's done very little, but yet it seems to have got out of jail because market forces, I don't know if it is market forces, but but the market seems to have regularised itself and we do see house prices increasing. Now, admittedly, they're increasing at a too high a rate in Dublin, but I think when you see house prices increasing, that has a knock-on effect of boosting consumer sentiment because if somebody... Is in if, if if somebody bought a house in two thousand and four two thousand and five and they were you know bought it for four hundred five hundred thousand euros and they're thirty or forty or fifty thousand euros in negative equity they feel like they're under much more financial pressure than they might actually be because if they're not going to move house the, the the price of the house in many respects is irrelevant but I think rising prices has had a really positive impact on consumer sentiment and I think sometimes consumer sentiment is one of the great overlooked imponderables about an, e- an economic recovery so you know the rising house prices is clearly it's a problem but on an, on the other hand it's a plus it's also I think you you you, you might suspect the government have been been happy enough with with the large increase in prices even though they might be slow to admit it because one of the advantages is that it's boosted the balance sheets of the banks. Mm. Uh, and, and it's you know when the cent- when the European Central Bank or the European Banking Authority is now looking at the loan books of the Irish banks uh, and looking at the value of the property which underline the loans they've given out, the picture now is a lot is a lot nicer than it would have been uh, a year ago or certainly two years ago. So you know you could argue that the government has, while saying on the one hand that they're they're sorry for first time buyers and they'll do whatever they can to help, have been happy enough because the, the the whole banking crisis has has subsumed everything, I suppose, and has been the the key factor and driving course, a lot that, of what, what's happened. Not only that, it's it's made Nama look like a much more attractive Absolutely. and smart yeah. proposition than it might otherwise have been. And you know you might be looking at a scenario that where where Nama will at some point you know seem like the most inspired idea that the state has ever had. Perhaps, Cliff. Do you think that Nama, you know, like you know, it's had its successes in terms of you know selling assets and all that yeah. sort of stuff, but has it had the vision to you know like prepare for this day, which would have to come uh, when people would want to get out there and buy and and be able to buy houses again? Well, I suppose you could argue, Tommy. You know, was was it Nama's job to do to do that? Um, I think certainly NAMA has had considerable success uh, in, in terms of taking on the uh, the portfolios of the banks and, and, and not losing any more money than, than, than what, what was paid for the loans in the first place. You remember, I, I guess, when NAMA was set up, we all feared that there was another huge black hole ready to appear when, you know, in five or ten years' time when, when we saw what NAMA had paid for the loans and what they were really worth. Now, fortunately, it doesn't appear that things have got any worse. And I th- you know, think NAMA has done a, done, a, done, a, done a reasonably good job in terms of parceling up the loans and selling them off, keeping interest in the market, uh, for foreign investors, uh, you know, and, and selling selling those bits of the loan book off, but you're right. I think they're they're probably now that process is is be a bit exaggerated to say it's coming towards an end, but it's probably another two or three years to run before they have a fairly small amount to sell. So NAM is probably looking to reinvent itself, and one of the 
one of the ways that that it's you know likely to be asked to act by the government is is in this housing area to develop certain areas to uh, and to act with developers to develop uh, some projects that still have you know where, where houses can be built relatively quickly provide part funding for that uh, and, and you know there is a possibly a useful role for NAMA in in, in that area. What do you think, Carl? I mean, do you think NAMA has been, uh, is it going to be seen as one of these these great achievements in the years to come? Uh, or do you think that has it failed in a lot of ways, like social affordable housing mm. and areas like that? Yeah, well, you know, if you look, when NAMA was set up, there was, there was very little obligation on it to deliver on the social side of things. And when you consider the vast number of properties it owned, we really should have been clearer about ensuring that there was a measurable social dividend uh, being provided on foot of this massive state investment. And what we've seen is just a trickle of homes being made available for either social or affordable use over a number of years. And I think it took a long time for relationships between you know, the government or Department of Environment and NAMA to begin to yield any houses. And it's not necessarily even as simple as saying, yeah, possibly in defence of NAMA, of saying that they could just deliver tens of thousands of homes to to solve the social housing crisis, which is out there. Because in many cases, these homes aren't in areas where there's a demand for social housing or they're not necessarily suitable for the type of people around social housing waiting lists. Certainly, I think we should have had a greater focus on, on some kind of a social dividend. And we've seen very, very little of it to date. And Connor, for people who are thinking, you know, they're they're reading the papers, they're getting all these mixed messages. Uh, do you think that you know people who are thinking of buying that should they sit tight and and wait for the market to settle, or do you think like what what advice would you give them? Well, I mean, it's very hard to give kind of general advice, but I suppose on broad, if you just broad brushstrokes, if you ha- if you can afford a house and you have the deposit and you can find a house in an area that you can see yourself being carried out of in a box in 30 or 40 years time i think it would be foolish not to buy it now i don't i think you know that there is volatility in the market who knows where it's going to be in 5 years or, or or 10 years but you know if you can afford the house and you can stress test your repayments to such an extent that you you can not only afford it based on today's interest rates but you can afford to uh, to, to you can afford the mortgage repayments based on interest rates if they went up by 1% or 2% now to be fair to the banks and to be to be honest i, I when it comes to giving them a kicking, I'm front and centre. But they have been doing an awful lot more rigorous stress testing of would-be borrowers in the last 18 months than they had than they were doing at the height of the boom. So, you know, it's not, you know, I don't think we should, it's not entirely gloomy. And one thing you should say is buying a, buying a house used to always be a difficult thing for people to achieve. It was never the simple thing. Like when my parents bought their first house in 1960, it might have only cost them £1,800, but it was a huge deal for them because getting the deposit together, getting the money was a major thing. Maybe it became too easy during the boom to get on the property ladder and maybe people have become softened and more used to that and now they're, they're struggling with the new reality. And Cliff, do you think that the, ultimately these central bank proposals are going to stabilise the market? Whatever about the volatility between now and uh, January? And not on their own, Tom, I don't think so, no. Uh, I think they may take some of the demand out of the market, all right, but I think the only thing that really is going to stabilise the market and lead to some kind of normality is when we get a normal supply of housing coming back on the market, particularly in the Dublin area. That's the that's the missing factor, if you like. If, if you have a normal supply conditions and normal demand conditions, uh, when, when the banks are fully back up, operational again you'll see where the where the price levels are going to settle it's a very hard to know 
where the, where they're going to settle. I mean, I'd agree with a lot of what Connor said there in terms of the fact that it's it's become it became very easy to buy houses over the last few years, and I, I think it is going to become more of a stretch for people. I suppose there may be a wider question for society here in the next few years: it, Are there going to be significant numbers of people on on kind of average or even above average wages who are not going to be able to afford a house? Uh, as currently constituted, you know, are we going to have to consider different kinds of housing units? Are people going to be renting for longer? And if so, what kind of rules are going to be need to be put in place to allow that to happen? So, I, you know, I think these rules on themselves, I, I, I think, uh, aren't going to stabilise the market. But I think there's those the longer term questions are, are going to come to the fore now, uh, you know, over the next couple of years. And it's worth noting, I think we've more people renting right now than we've had in about 50, possibly 60 years. And a consequence of the new mortgage rules, of course, will be that you may even have more people renting. And there is, in many parts of the city, a rental crisis, but there's been no real sign of any measures, certainly at government level, to even countenance issues like rent control. And the government runs a million miles away when you mention the word rent control because it's seen as something that of the uh, uh, Eastern Bloc rigid application of rules. But of course, the new rental controls, particularly in countries like Germany and the Netherlands and elsewhere, allow for a degree of increase. So giving certainty to people in the rental market, I think, is going to be vital in, in the months and years ahead. I think we'd want to be really careful about talking about rent controls in a market where the, where variable rate mortgages can have a huge impact on somebody. Because if you introduce rent control uh, on a landlord who's got a variable rate mortgage, they, the property could end up costing them huge amounts of money if interest rates go up by 2 or 3%. Rent controls only work in a, in, in, in a world where mortgages are fixed. So the landlord knows exactly how much they're going to be paying out and the tenant knows how much they're, they're, they're going to have to pay. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Yeah, but rent controls nowadays, if you look in most... Um, progressive European countries allow for a degree of increase to facilitate those kinds of increases. What they don't allow are massive increases in the scale of 20-30% increases in rents which are crucifying uh, many people out there. But you know, there is no appetite for the government to even address this among Fine Gael or even Labour and I suspect maybe a lot of this, Cliff, you might know better about this is to do with pension funds maybe which are invested in property and if we even talked about putting in uh, rental controls you'd have people either not quite fleeing the market but not wanting to invest in the yeah, first place. Yeah, I, I suppose, I, I'm sure you're right, Karen, it's probably part of the story also why the government abandoned the the review of the, the, the promise in terms of uh, upward only rent reviews for, for, for the retail sector and, and you know, another and another commercial property uh, people renting commercial property because of that of that fear now sometimes you think that those fears are maybe a bit overplayed and that uh, the investor sec- you know the investor lobby uh, and the banking lobby have maybe a bit more say in policy than they should have but anyway well, I think that uh, that's that's a pretty fair point. Uh, <laughs> at, at that point, we're going to uh, close uh, this week's podcast. I'm Tom Lyons. The show was produced by Sinead O'Shea with sound engineer uh, JJ Vernon and research was by Declan Conlon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 